Someone said that when it comes to parenting, kids are not to be molded, they are to be unfolded. And I am very happy today as the father of our guest preacher today uh, to uh, say that uh, his mother unfolded him very well. <laughs> My name's Philip. For those of you who are visiting today, I happen to be a very fortunate person in that I'm pastor of this church, and I'm very fortunate today, as are you, to have as our speaker today our son and our former associate pastor, Devin Wright. He is now uh, living in Issaquah, Washington with Kylie, his wife, whom you know. Hello, Devin. And Devin is pastoring uh, the Mission Gathering Church of Bellevue, Washington, right outside of Seattle. So, uh, hello, how are you? Tall. You are, you've always been taller than I in so many ways. Uh, looking forward to hearing you. Welcome, Devin. Thank you. So good to be here. It's so good to see familiar faces and new faces. How many were at Theology Beer Camp this weekend? Awesome. Thank you so much for those of you who volunteered. I kind of feel like I need a Theology Juice Cleanse Camp. It was kind of an intense weekend. It was very, very good. So this series, The Venues, has been looking at one of the most famous songs of all time in a new and inspiring way. And this song is Psalm 23, an ancient Hebrew song. Music is really, really powerful. Just ask the Swifties. <laughs> Bloomberg reported that the Eras Tour, anyone go to the Taylor Swift concert yet? You couldn't afford the $1,500 tickets? <laughs> the Eras Tour brought in over $5 billion with an economic impact greater than 50 countries. And Taylor Swift put Travis Kelsey on the map. <laughs> Did I just piss anyone off, any Chiefs fans? Why is music so powerful? Elton John tells us that music has healing power. It has the ability to take people out of themselves for a few hours. Demi Lovato said, music has helped me through everything. She's been through a lot of depression, anxiety, addiction, struggles, especially music that I could relate to and make me feel like I'm not alone. And for those of us feeling depression and anxiety and fear and loneliness, and loss and grief, we need something that gives us a relief. Oliver Sacks, who is a renowned neurologist and author, and um, he actually did groundbreaking work in helping the world be more open to autism and helping the world see that autism was not to be stigmatized, but just to be another way of experiencing the world. And he did some groundbreaking research on music in the brain. And this is what Oliver said. Music has the ability to lift us out of depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic for the ear. As powerful as music can be, we often misunderstand the lyrics or the meaning of a song, especially if the lyrics are hard to understand. Take a look at this video. I'm friends with the monster, the son of my bed. I wish 
Psalm 23, now we transition to the Bible. <laughs> psalm 23 is a song that is written in ancient Hebrew, centuries later, translated into ancient Greek, and then centuries and centuries and centuries later, translated into English in dozens and dozens of English translations. Sometimes the message of the original song gets lost. So I want to look at the last two verses of Psalm 23. If you've missed this series, you can go to the venue.org and uh, listen to the, the rest of the series. It was really meaningful. Um, so the last two verses we're going to focus on to try to understand the message better of how we can maybe relate to it in our modern world. So here's the message, and this is the King James Version. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. This sounds like a line from Game of Thrones. Thou preparest a table before me. It's weird. What do we do with this lyric that sounds like a Game of Thrones line? We don't go pouring oil on people's head anymore. What in the world does that mean? But in the ancient world, this picture was a sign and a picture of luxury, a, a table that was prepared and full of food, a cup that's filled with your favorite drink of water or wine and it never empties, and oil when you had a guest come travel a long ways and they're covered in uh, dust and dirt, it was sometimes offered oil to cleanse the skin the way we use soap, and it was a sign of hospitality, of caring for your guests. Um, so this is a a picture of almost royalty and luxury. It's Taylor Swift in the, the Chief's VIP box. Everything you need. But what's interesting is that the songwriter feels this way in the presence of all of his enemies. And it's a very different picture than the song that he wrote prior to this. It's attributed to him, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, the same songwriter says that he feels also surrounded by enemies, but he feels hated and despised. He feels like a worm, he says. He feels less than human. And maybe that's how the Palestinians felt when Israel's deputy defense minister called them animals. And maybe that's how the Jews felt when the Nazi propaganda called them lice and rats. Maybe that's how the Rwandan Tutsis felt when they were called cockroaches in the Rwandan genocide. It was much easier to enact violence and revenge on a people when we see them as less than human. And sometimes we dehumanize ourselves. I mean, if you grew up in a religious tradition that taught what was called total depravity or original sin, the idea that the moment you are born, you are not worthy of God's love. Because you are sin itself. Sometimes we talk to ourselves in ways that dehumanize. I'm worthless. I'm no good. So he says that his enemies around him and everyone despises him and insults him. They are like bulls that surround him. They are like lions who are trying to tear at his flesh. He says that his bones are melting inside of his flesh. That's how he feels. He said his mouth is so dry, he's so terrified that his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth. This sounds like a horror movie scene from Saw. 
It's terrifying. But then this next song, the songwriter has a completely different scene. He's still surrounded by his enemies, but he feels at peace, at rest. He has everything he needs. He feels like royalty. He feels taken care of. He feels like Taylor Swift in the VIP Chiefs box. It's all good. We're having fun now. (laughs) That's a completely opposite and kind of strange picture. So when he says he's just surrounded by enemies, I mean, our go-to thought is in the ancient world, there's all these people around him with swords trying to attack him, like war, a battle. But this Hebrew word really means anything or anyone that pressures you, that makes you feel um, restricted or constricted or, or trapped in a corner, anything that makes you feel stress and worry and fear, and just frozen, anything or anyone. Some commentators even say that this better refers to someone you know who has your best interests at heart, or should have your best interests at heart. They're not treating you like they should. They're causing you pain. Selena Gomez, if you watched uh, Only Murders in the Buildings, it's a great show, Martin Short, Steve Martin. Selena Gomez has um, a really incredible music career. Um, and she struggled with anxiety and depression uh, and chronic illness, and she's been vocal about that. And she's talked about her enemies, the things that pressure her. And she said, I'm surrounded by people who are supposed to guide me. And some of them have, and others haven't. And they pressure me. There's so much pressure. You've got to be sexy, you've got to be cute, you've got to be nice, you've got to be all these things. They tell me what to wear, how to look, what I should say, how I should be. And she's vocal about dealing with the pressure and chronic pain and fatigue from lupus and autoimmune disease. What are the pressures that you are feeling? What are your enemies right now? The enemy of insecurity, the enemy of fear of the future, the uh, enemy of society's expectations on you. If you are a woman, you have expectations and pressure placed on you that I will never comprehend. Multiply that if you are a woman of color. What are your pressures? The enemy of unmet goals. The enemy of life was not supposed to turn out this way. The enemy of chronic pain, anxiety, depression. If you hold uh, theological or political views that are different than maybe your family, you maybe feel the pressure from them. The judgment. If you are one of our beloved siblings, LGBTQIA community, you maybe feel the pressure from your family or other faith communities who have seen your very life as sin. You feel the pressure and the judgment, and when you are in the same room, it's tangible. You feel it. Your body tenses up. You feel constricted. And Selena Gomez goes on. She says, until recently, I had given in to that pressure. I lost sight of who I was. I listened to opinions of people, and I tried to change who I am, because I thought others would accept me for it. And I realized, I don't know how to be anything but myself. Amidst the pressure, she was somehow able to find 
a relief. I'm just going to be myself. Rest in that, your true self. When we're surrounded about those, surrounded by those pressures of our expectations and our worry and our stress, it is so easy to just give in or fight or flight or freeze. But the songwriter of Psalm 23, like Selena Gomez, somehow found this moment amidst the pressure to feel rest, to breathe, to sit, to eat, to drink. Maybe that's possible for us when we feel the pressure, the worry, the fear. And all of those responses to the pressure are normal human responses. The fear, the stress, the worry, the anger, those are normal human responses. But sometimes when we feel those things, our primitive reptilian brain kicks in and says, we got to fight, or we got to run, or we got to freeze, or we got to pretend that we're dead, fawn. And sometimes our reaction to those feelings and those emotions look like violence, look like lashing out, look like um, hate towards maybe a, a person or a different a group that's different than I am. Or maybe the pressure is so much that I lash out at the people closest to me. Hurtful words, passive aggression, active aggression. How do we find that space between I'm feeling the pressure, I'm feeling the fear, I'm feeling the stress, and over here is the reaction of what I'm going to do? How do we find that space to where we don't react in a way that we later regret? This song of Psalm 23 tells me that maybe there can be a space between those two things. Where I can observe my emotions and be with them and have some compassion and curiosity towards them. But (laughs) that's so hard to do. Our inclination is to react. It's so natural. Donald Trump said once, how many of you just froze when I said that? (laughs) He said once, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back ten times harder. That's our gut reaction. Get back. Eye for an eye. If you poke my eye out, I want to rip your limbs apart. Our world leaders have done this throughout human history. You hit me, I'm going to hit back harder. When attacked, their uh, reaction is often violence, violent vengeance. We're seeing this with uh, Israel and Hamas. We saw it uh, with 9-11. I want to read an excerpt from a renowned uh, theologian, Reverend Philip Wright. (laughs) He has a blog post every week. If you don't follow, you should. Um, This past Friday, he talked about an interview with uh, General Stanley McChrystal about the U.S. response to 9-11 terrorist attacks. And McChrystal was the commander of the U.S. and um, International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan. Um, And he asked, or he was asked, if you could go back to 9-11, what would you do differently? And General McChrystal gave this answer. Right after the 9-11 attacks, I would have made the decision inside the U.S. government to do nothing for a year. And what I mean by nothing is no bombing, no strikes. 
I would have gone around as the aggrieved party and built up a coalition for what ought we do about Al-Qaeda. We didn't understand the problem, the complexities of the environment, I think, weren't appreciated. We went for what we thought would work quickly over what would have likely worked over the longer term. Do nothing. Gosh, can you imagine being attacked by a terrorist group and doing nothing? That's what he wishes he would have done. Wait before we react. And Democrats and Republicans are often on polar opposites on almost every issue. But when the Pearson Institute, Associated Press, and the University of Chicago put out a poll on um, people's opinions about the invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11, both Republicans and Democrats, two-thirds of them said the war was not worth fighting. On both sides, the war was not worth fighting. We regret. We regret how we reacted. Sometimes our reaction to our emotions of fear and anger lead to an act that we regret. Is a response justified? Yeah. A response is absolutely justified. Is revenge justified? As a follower of Jesus who commanded to love your enemies? No. It's not justified. How do we create that space between our emotions of fear and our reaction? The governor of Illinois gave a commencement speech this year that helps us point in that direction. Let's take a look. The best way to spot an idiot, look for the person who is cruel. Let me explain. When we see someone who doesn't look like us or sound like us or act like us, or love like us, or live like us. The first thought that crosses almost everyone's brain is rooted in either fear or judgment, or both. That's evolution. We survived as a species by being suspicious of things that we aren't familiar with. In order to be kind, we have to shut down that animal instinct and force our brain to travel a different pathway. Empathy and compassion are evolved states of being. They require the mental capacity to step past our most primal urges. This may be a surprising assessment because somewhere along the way in the last few years, our society has come to believe that weaponized cruelty is part of some well-thought-out master plan. Cruelty is seen by some as an adroit cudgel to gain power. Empathy and kindness are considered weak. Many important people look at the vulnerable only as rungs on a ladder to the top. I'm here to tell you that when someone's path through this world is marked with acts of cruelty, they have failed the first test of an advanced society. They never forced their animal brain to evolve past its first instinct. They never forged new mental pathways to overcome their own instinctual fears. And so their thinking and problem solving will lack the imagination and creativity that the kindest people have in spades. Over my many years in politics and business, I have found one thing to be universally true. The kindest person in the room is often the smartest. 
I do want to say that there are those of us who have experienced so much trauma in life, we were never given an opportunity to know how to forge any mental pathways, to know how to react any differently. There are entire groups of people and cultures in the world who are so oppressed that they've never been given that opportunity, never been taught how, never been given a chance. That's hard. But we have a chance. We have a chance to do that. There's a view in human evolution that the reason that we have survived and evolved as a species is not just survival of the fittest, but survival of the kindest. Because so many points along the way, there were enough people willing to say, it's better that we work together than kill each other. And so we're here today because of that. Take a moment to rest, to breathe, to eat, to drink, to reflect. And and after the songwriter of this psalm did that, he became aware of something. And that's what we find in verse 6. Surely your and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But this lyric is kind of misleading. A lot of um, biblical scholars say that there are a lot of words here that were kind of not translated very well. The lyrics weren't translated very well of this song. For instance, the word goodness, that's really more like happiness and joyfulness. The word mercy, that's such a like churchy religious word. It literally means love or kindness. And there are a few translations that call it loving kindness for that word in Hebrew. The word follow in Hebrew is used a lot of other places in the Bible and a couple other places, a few other places in the Psalms, but it doesn't mean you're quietly following someone. For example, this is how it's used in the Psalms. Let the enemy pursue Radaf follow and overtake me, trample my life to the ground. For the enemy has pursued, followed, Radoff in Hebrew, crushing my life to the ground, making me sit in the darkness like those long dead. It's the picture of your enemies chasing you down until you are dead. And he says, surely your goodness and mercy will follow me. The translation is, surely your happiness and joy and love will chase me down, will pursue me. It's a very different picture. The songwriter flips the script, so it's not the enemies that are chasing him down. It's happiness and joy and love. He turns this frightening image of an enemy, and he turns it into something that's wonderful and good and life-giving. And then this one's interesting. Surely doesn't mean surely in Hebrew. It means only. Fear and worry and threats and hate will not chase me down anymore. Only happiness and love and kindness and joy will chase me down the rest of my life. I love that picture. And then the word forever, that doesn't mean forever. That's misleading. It literally means a length of days. It doesn't mean the afterlife. It doesn't mean heaven. The uh, ancient Hebrew people did not have a concept of heaven or hell. That didn't happen until 100 to 200 years before Jesus, long after the Psalms were written. It literally means every moment 
of your entire existence. Every present moment of your entire existence, the length that you are here, that you exist. So this is um, Devin's revised 2023 translation of Psalm 23.6. Only happiness, love, and joy will pursue me every moment of my existence rather than shame, guilt, and worry. And I am in the presence of God every single moment of my life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul says. That's so much easier said than done. Hard to feel that sometimes. So how do we take that fear and flip it and turn it into happiness? How do we do what Paul said in in the letter to Romans? How do we overcome evil with good? Ah, well, let's look at Disney. Disney fixes all our problems, right? Pixar, watch a Pixar movie and all of your emotional trauma is healed. Just releases the floodgates. Most famous mouse in the world was created by a man who had a fear of mice. He was scared of mice. What did he do? Maybe this way of facing his fear was to turn that fear into something fun, something cute, something adorable, something you can enjoy. Feel the fear, feel the anxiety, feel the worry, feel the pressure, be curious about it, and then rather than reacting or retaliating or getting even or lashing out or cowering away, maybe there's a hope that we can somehow transform that fear into something good. Realize that love and goodness and happiness and joy and beauty is right here, that the fear and the pressure and the stress and the worry is not all there is. There's more here. It's the contemplative path, some call it. Some call it the third way. Glennon Doyle says, here's my hunch. Nobody's secure. Nobody feels like she completely belongs. Those insecurities are just job hazards of being human. But some people dance anyway, and those people have more fun. You're going to feel the pressure. Dance anyway. Even if you can't dance, you're going to have more fun. My father quoted the Native American philosopher, Alexander A.D. Posey, he says, take a deep breath, inhale peace, exhale happiness. Science tells us that when we're feeling overwhelmed in our emotions, your breath is what tells your body you're okay. It lets you transition from the fear. There is beauty and love and goodness here too. The presence of God is with you every single moment. So be present, be here, be now. No matter what the future holds, you have no idea. Quantum physics says there is no future. There is no past. There is no time. It's all an illusion. That's what science says. I don't get it. It's weird. All we have is right now. And right now, God can provide a million possibilities of the next now and what that next now is going to be like. But maybe if we're able to create space and be in that present eternal now where God is, then we can listen to what that next thing is, and maybe that next thing can be some love, some kindness, some peace, some compassion. And if we can just get our world leaders to take deep breaths, 
before they hit the button and shoot missiles, maybe we wouldn't have thousands of babies who are dead. Maybe if we can learn to have space between our emotions and our reactions, we can listen to the voice of God to say what will bring life-giving peace and love in this moment. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.